stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. Who knows how the monster started to grow that way? Her parents are frightened, wish it would go away. But the taxes keep coming, they have to be spent on the big bull. And the tanks of cement Oh, stand by me Let's protect this tree From the freeway misery Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast um, And right now we're working on uh, The works of Odo Leopold Beginning with a Sand County Almanac um, And so let's jump right in and, and, and talk about the second half of a Sand County Almanac um, So this uh, this book is in three parts. In, in the last episode, we looked at the first part, which is the, the actual Assane County Almanac, which is the, the monthly uh, kind of examination of, 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 of animal life, of the wilderness, of ecology uh, in, you know, around Leopold's shack, you know, where he, where he often stayed in Wisconsin. Um, so the second half kind of moves in from that to, to maybe more theoretical issues to more uh, explicit uh, explanations of some of Leopold's points. Um, part two is called Sketches Here and There, and this uh, are drawn from different phases of Leopold's life. So some are about Wisconsin, some are about the Southwest, one is even about Canada. Uh, so it's kind of ventures around North America and all the places where Leopold worked. And they're mostly about ecological destruction. So if they're thematically tied together, and I do think they are, they're thematically tied about uh, the violence that humanity inflicts on nature, on the wilderness, on, on ecology. And then part three is, is, is uh, a handful of, I think is it just three or four, but yeah, I think it's four of them, but it's a handful of of theoretical essays on on ecology so part two is a little bit more part like part one in that it's a bunch of little short essays some of them are just a couple pages that really make bold points but do so in clear simple straightforward uh, language often very colorful language often very uh, beautiful descriptions of of settings and then after that he gets into his i guess his theory Okay, anyways, uh, the first essay in Sketches Here and There comes right out swinging um, directly. It's called Marshland Elegy, and it's, it's about the wetlands of, of Wisconsin, um, but they come kind of feed off the Wisconsin River, Baraboo Hills, that area. And he looks into the deep history of it, and he goes into this, this past, how, this, how these wetlands existed since like the end of the Ice Age. Uh, so he goes back that far. He compares uh, this kind of the regular patterns of this marshland to even like to, to even the Nile at one point. Um, but what keeps the time here in this with this deep, deep history? Well, it's the cranes and the cranes become a character in this little essay because they always return to the, to the marshlands every every year. Um, and of course, this makes it interesting to ornithologists as well as to sportsmen. And uh, obviously, a big theme in Leopold's writing, and something that really affected him throughout his career, was the the tension between sports 
sportsmen, uh, people who want hunting, want to hunt birds. He did it himself. Uh, he was enthusiastic of hunting his, 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 in much of his life. Uh, I think he, his views on it seemed to change at the end of, by the end of his life when he wrote a Sanconian Almanac, but he, he respected that interest and trying to manage the desire of people to have a wilderness, the desire of, of nature for its own right, like an ecological vision, the land ethic, with the, the needs of sportsmen is something that he thinks a lot about, obviously, and it's even here. Um, but uh, he ends the essay then talking about the destruction of, of the marshlands by, by agriculture. Uh, he writes, but crops were poor and beset by frost, to which the expensive ditches added an aftermath of debt. Farmers moved out, peat beds dried, shrank, caught fire. Sun energy out of the Pliocene shrouded the countryside in acrid smoke. No man raised his voice against the waste, only his nose against the smell. After a dry summer, not even the winter snows could extinguish the smoldering marsh. Great pockmarks were burned into fields and meadows, the scars reaching down to the sands of the old lake, peat covered those hundred centuries. Rank weeds sprang out of the ashes to be followed after a year or two by aspirin shrub. Um, and so ultimately the conclusion is the market, capitalism, the needs of agriculture, the needs of the marketplace uh, destroy this marshland which had this long history. And he says, thus always does history, whether of marsh or marketplace, end in paradox. The ultimate value in these marshes is wilderness, and the crane is wilderness incarnate. But all conservation of, of wildness is self-defeating, for to cherish we must see and fondle. And when we see and we've seen enough and fondle, there's no wilderness left to cherish. And that's going to be another theme of his work, I think, is the fate of the wilderness itself. Like, can this really exist? I remember William Cronin, a great environmental historian, uh, wrote one of the best books on Chicago ever written, if not the best, called Nature's Metropolis. He wrote an essay kind of on the impossibility of the wilderness, like every place is touched by human hands to some degree. Um, and, and in America in particular, you don't really find that. But when you conserve a place, to do that requires to, to touch it. And once it's touched, it's not really wilderness anymore. So it's a bit of par paradox. I don't know if it can be really resolved. I, I think the social ecologists sort of believe humans can use technology and their wisdom to sort of manage nature. Um, and, and maybe that's possible, but, but I think this paradox will exist regardless. Uh, the next essay, The Sand Counties, kind of gets to the question of, of the market a little bit more explicitly, asking the question, are the sand counties valuable? And from an economist point of view, they're, weak, they're, they're poor. Um, and so it comes, if we come at these regions like an economist, like a social planner, we will come away with the conclusion that this is, this, this land's not valuable. Uh, but if we come at it, you know, with a land ethic in mind, it certainly is valuable, right? And that there's things that economists can't even see. I, I think that's true kind of more broadly for economists. They're good at maybe seeing some things and analyzing some things, but they usually miss the big picture. Or they sometimes miss the small, um, and that's uh, Aldo Leopold's concern here is that they miss the small. Uh, he writes, sometimes in June, when I see unearned dividends of dew hung on every lupine, I have doubts about the real poverty of the sands. On solvent farmland, lupines do not even grow, much less collect a daily rainbow of jewels. If they did, the weed control officer, who seldom sees a dewy dawn, would doubtless insist that they be cut. 
do economists know about the lupines? And he says, well, farmers might, but they're not necessarily going to preserve the, the lupines. It's a type of flower. Um, so we see right away that in these, in these essays, in the second part of the San Antonio Almanac, they're all about like the human impact on nature. I think the San Antonio Almanac itself touches on that, but it's largely about nature with its own cycles, its own patterns, its own rhythms, its autonomy, its, its freedom, its, its agency. And in part two, it, it just blow, hits you blow after blow um, in the face over human damage to the environment. Uh, one of the most uh, heart-wrenching, uh, still in the section uh, called Wisconsin, is on a monument to a pigeon, which is about the extinction of the, of the, of the pigeons, the, uh, the passenger pigeons, right? And this is a story you've probably heard of before. If, if you haven't been living under a rock or you have at least a basic... Uh, his, you know, knowledge of, of the human impact on the environment, the passenger pigeon, one of the first and most well-known examples of, of man-made extinction, a man-caused extinction, just overhunting um, caused the, the end of the species, which one just filled the skies. Um, and, and he also kind of is good here, like he did in some other essays of getting the deep history here. Um, you know, first kind of the short-term history like Darwin and then going deeper beyond that to how trying to put himself in the head of how maybe people in the past um, maybe saw the environment um, and, and how we're maybe seeing it differently based on new ideas. There's a lot going on in each of these essays and they're all very short. That's one thing I like about them. Um, it is a century now, he writes, since Darwin gave us our first glimpse of the origin of species. We know now that was unknown to all the preceding caravan of generations, that men are only fellow voyagers with other creatures in the odyssey of evolution. This new knowledge should be given us, by this time, a sense of kinship with fellow creatures. Above all, we should, in this century since Darwin, have come to know that man, while now captain of the adventuring ship, is hardly the sole object of its quest. Uh, and then he brings up like the Cro-Magnum killing the last mammoth. I think those were Homo sapiens. They weren't Cro-Magnum, but whatever. Uh, the, the, the thought experiment still applies. Uh, the Cro-Magnon who slew the last mammoth thought only of stakes. The sportsman who shot the last pigeon thought only of his prowess. The sailor who clubbed the last auk thought of nothing at all. But we who have lost our pigeons more than loss. All right? So this is something that when they're being destroyed, it's not thought of as a loss. It's only when they're gone that we experience this loss. And that's the stupidity of, of man, I think, that, that he's getting at here. Um, but it's a beautiful essay um, looking at the looking at the extinction of the pigeon, the why of it, the how it was possible. And then he ends going to the perspective of the pigeon, the lost pigeon, trying to, I don't know if this is what a good eulogy does. Uh, I haven't listened to many of those, read too many of those, but Leopold here, anyways, ends by meditating on the, the pigeon's perspective of the land, the pigeon's perspective of the things around him, the things he loved. And it's really nice, really, really wonderful. All right, moving on to the next section of, of sketches here and there. The second part of San County Almanac is Illinois and Iowa. And I think there's just two essays here, just a few pages. Um, the bulk of this are, are the Wisconsin essays, I think, or the longest section is the Wisconsin's. Uh, essay. His most famous, actually, is coming from the Southwest, though. 
Altogether, it's only like 60 pages, this whole part two. Um, but anyways, the first of these is called the Illinois Bus Ride. And this is really about, also about human violence to nature uh, in the form of uh, kind of presented as thoughts during a, like a 60 mile bus ride through, through Illinois. Um, and he thinks about uh, development, he thinks about econo the economy, he thinks about how progress is measured. Uh, and he writes about, for instance, the, everything on the farm spills money in the bank. The farmstead abounds in fresh paint, steel and concrete. The dates on the barn commemorates the founding fathers. The roof bristles with lightning rods. The weathercock is proud with his new gilt. Even the pigs look solvent. The old oaks on the woodlot are without issue. There's no hedges, brush patches, fence rows, and other signs of shiftless husbandry. The cornfield has fat steers, but probably no quail. Uh, so this is contrast all the time, right? The success of the farm, but the death of the old oaks. The death of the, the quail. And the second little essay in this section is called Red Legs Kicking, which is, I think, a good sign that maybe he's starting to rethink his attitude towards uh, hunting. Um, he talks about the time he, he hunted. He shot a deer. And I think he talks about, it's about his first time uh, hunting, a, hunting a bird, it is, a duck. Um, and he talks about like his lack of feeling about it, that it, it's kind of somehow left him, left him kind of empty. And he did it again, but it's really kind of a weird little essay. Again, it's only about a page long, the whole thing. So when my father gave me a shotgun, he said I might hunt partridges with it, but that I might not shoot from them from the trees. I, I was old enough, he said, to learn wing shooting. My dog was good at treeing partridge, and to forego a sure shot in the tree in favor of a hopeless one at a fleeing bird was my first exercise in ethical codes. Compared with the treed partridge, the devil in the seven kingdoms was a mild temptation. At the end of my second season of featherless partridge hunting, I was walking one day through an aspen thicket when a big partridge ro rose with a roar to my left and towering over the aspens crossed behind me, hell-bent on the nearest cedar swamp. It was a swinging shot of the sort of parridge hunter dreams about, and the bird tumbled dead in the shower of feathers and golden leaves. I could draw a map today of every clump of red butchberry and every blue aster that adorned the mossy spot where he lay, my first partridge on the wing. I suspect my present affection for brunch berries and asters dates from the moment. Uh, that's, so that's what he writes about this. Uh, so there's a lot, again, a lot going on here. What you don't feel in him saying how proud he felt of hunting it, he, he was proud of the challenge of it. And he does get at the ethics of it. That's another level here, is that there is an ethics to, to hunting. There's a nobility to the hunter. There's some rules about it. Uh, but those rules don't explain the extinction of the passenger pigeon, do they? Um, if all the hunters were ethical, that wouldn't have happened. The extinction wouldn't have happened. So how deeply does that actually explain how most hunters act is a question I have. But the fact that he has more of a, he's got such a vivid memory of this, of this murder he engaged in, to the point where he, he can tell you what plants were nearby the, the fallen um, partridge. It's, it's, it's all very impactful, I think. Um, the next section is called Arizona and New Mexico. And this is more about the end of the frontier stuff. Um, and we get a lot of end of frontier stuff in this 
in this section. I think the most well-known essay, the one most people have maybe read before, uh, the one that maybe affects us most directly now is called Thinking Like a Mountain. Um, and it, it gets not quite to the land ethic because the land ethic is more about our relationship to the land overall. Um, but it's, it's really about the damage done by something we, that when we think when we think about things, not we don't think them through. We don't think about things systemically. Right? So I think it's a good essay on ecology, actually. So, you know, from a sportsman's point of view, if you're hunt, deer hunting, wolves take away a significant number of deer each year. So it's less deer for us. And when you pass out tags, when the government determines we can harvest so many deer this year, and issue tags accordingly and price tags accordingly those deer killed by the wolves are affected it's a, it's a it's an it's a, it's it's part of the cost it's part of the calculation so it does affect sportsmen so the solution then was eradicating predators and this was done throughout the united states uh, every state right it's just now are some states like returning predators i mean alaska is maybe a special case but wolves are just now being reintroduced into to say it's still very political and people are still talking people, i think i heard a news report people are talking about wolf hunting bringing it back to wisconsin because there's too many wolves and it's only a few hundred i guess it's not a huge population but you know this tension between farmers and and wolves or sportsmen or wolves it's, it's always there it's never gone away it's, it's it's kind of shocking um so you kill the wolves right and then but that makes sense if you think like a sportsman. It doesn't make sense if you think like a mountain. That's the whole. That's why it's called this way. Now, he doesn't just say, "Well, if you kill the predators, then you got too many deer, and then the deer eat the mountaintop clean, and then there's too much food, or there's not enough food for the deer, and then the deer population goes down, and the whole ecosystem is out of whack." That's the ecological argument: the the balance between predator and prey, and 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 the food for the for the prey you know we you learn that very early in school i think um and that's here certainly but i think the maybe most memorable part is when he talks about himself killing this wolf he writes in those days we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf in a second we were pumping lead into the pack but with more excitement than accuracy how to aim a steep downhill shot is always confusing when our rifles were empty the old wolf was down. The pup was dragging his leg in to impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and I have known ever since, that there was something new in me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then and full of fever itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would meet a hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. And he he extends his argument to other places, saying, like, for instance, it's also the same with cows. Quote, the cowman who cleans his range with wolves does not realize that he is taking over the wolf's job of trimming the herd to fit the range. He has not learned to think like a mountain. Hence, we have dust bowls and rivers washing the future into the sea. Um, so, uh, the, the next essay called Euskadilla is, uh, similarly themed, but this one takes on more directly the issue of pro how we define progress and especially this issue of the end of the frontier. And I think this one is quite, 
quite a powerful essay itself. Uh, maybe not as impactful and emotional as Thinking Like a Mountain, but it's just as tragic, and it's tragic on a much, much broader scale. Um, and th this one deals with also the clearing of, of predators, in this case bears, and the role of the government in facilitating this. I mean, the government was there in the forefront of the frontier, serving the needs of sportsmen, but not always thinking, not thinking like a mountain, not thinking about the, like the landscape itself. Uh, the next section, the next set of essays are Chihuahua and Sonora. So those are set uh, in Mexico and they kind of carry on these, these themes. Uh, then we have a short section of just one essay called Cheat Takes Over, which is set in Oregon in Utah. Uh, this one is, is kind of a, something different uh, than all the others. It's, it's about human impact, but it's about human impact in a more oblique way. It talks about invasive species, what he calls these ecological stowaways. Um, and he gives several examples of, of that and how that, 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 that form of human impact has been devastating to, to nature. Uh, then the last one is, is Manitoba. And this actually comes full circle. We're reminded of the very, very first essay in part two, where we see the death of the Wisconsin uh, marshlands, the eulogy of, of a marsh in Wisconsin. And here, this one is about the death of, of marshland in, in Canada. So all these essays taken together explore human violations of, of nature. So we got this beautiful setup in the Sand County Almanac part of it, this, the, the cycles of time, the, the autonomy, the agency, the, the liberty of, of nature, um, and a little bit on humans' interactions with it, but more the human is the observer of, of nature, an observer of its beauty. Then in part two, we get this blow after blow, uh, looking across all of North America, at human uh, violence towards nature. Everything from uh, agriculture, destroying marshlands, to invasive species, to the destruction of predators and the, the, the chaos that brings to, to natural ecosystems. Um, bird hunting, extinction, all these things. So by the time we get to part three, if you read this in one sitting, which is perfectly possible to do, it's a, it's a very, very short work, um, by the time you get to part three, you're kind of emotionally vulnerable, I guess. Um, now, he actually says in the introduction to the book that reading part three is optional. He says, part three, the upshot, sets forth in more logical terms some of the ideas whereby we dissenters rationalize our dissent. Only the very sympathetic reader will wish to wrestle with the philosophical questions of part three. I suppose it may be said that these essays tell the company how, to, how it might get back into step. So I don't know why he says that. I mean, they're not hard essays, uh, but they are more academic. They are more arguments. They're not, uh, they're not so emotional. They're not about his experiences. They're not as poetic. Um, but that said, you, why set up this blow after blow of destruction in, in, uh, in part two and not have a response not have a solution even you know not have hope uh i don't know how anyone can read it that way and i don't know if many people do but um part three does provide a solution and the solution comes in in various ways it, it comes ethically it becomes even culturally there's the cultural aspects to it 
and, and governmental aspects to it, uh, to the solution. And, and, and it's presented in a, in, a, in a handful of short essays. Everything Leopold writes is pretty short. But there's four of them. The first is called Conservation Aesthetic. Uh, the second is wildlife and American culture. The third is wilderness. And the last is the famous uh, land ethic. So the first one, conservation aesthetic, is really about why we preserve nature. Why, why do we have conservation, right? And basically, you know, you have conservation, which is like kind of like for economic conservation. Like we need, we expect paper production to increase 50% in the next 20 years, so that's why we're going to plant two trees for every tree we cut down, says the paper company, um, or says the, or some government mandate. It's not about really preserving forests or wilderness, it's just we need, we're, we, we know we're going to need more trees in the future, so we're going to plant more trees. There's that. Um, there's the interest of the sportsman. Again, that's always on Leopold mind. I think it's something he grappled with quite a lot in his career. And then you have the goals, those who just want to appreciate nature, right? And he kind of uh, separates these two. Uh, one way you can identify the sportsman, the hunter, is, is, the, is the pleasure coming in the trophy versus the pleasure coming in, in experience, right? We begin with the simplest and most obvious, the physical objects that the outdoorsman may seek, find, capture, and carry away. In this category, wild crops, such as game and fish, and the symbols or tokens of achievement, such as heads, hides, photographs and specimens. All of these things rest on the idea of trophy. The pleasure they give is or should be in the seeking as well as in the getting the trophy, whether it be a bird's egg, a mess of trout, a basket of mushrooms, or a photograph of a bear, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I mean, we're still, though, in a, a use frame of mind here, right? And as, as revolutionary as Leopold is, I mean, it's he's just reaching at the end of his life the, an idea that that the land ethic exists i mean he's never going to say you can't go to leopold and expect him to say like we should be totally indifferent to the interests of sportsmen of thrill seekers of people who were going to use wilderness wilderness is there to sort of be used there's this paradox it's still wilderness once we're there once we touch it but it's part of his worldview coming from like part working in the government, working in the forest service and things like that. So he, he can't escape gaming. I know that might be distasteful for some people, but it's certainly a part of American life and it still very much is. And it's a big concern of local and state governments is managing wildlife in this way. And, you know, as we move maybe to more broader eco ecological point of view, something closer to his land ethic, I mean, those interests aren't going to go away. I mean, just practically, even if we're in an eco-anarchist society, I imagine you'll still have hunters. Um, so that's really, I think this essay, more than maybe providing a clear solution, sets up the problem of outdoor recreation, resources, managing those things, and managing recreation and, and the economic needs of, of preservation. Um, but ultimately he gets that there has to be a change in attitude towards nature. He writes, um, it is the expansion of transport without a corresponding growth of perception that threatens us with qualitative bankruptcy of the recreational process. 
Recreational development is a job, not of building roads into lovely country, but of building receptivity into the still unlovely human mind. That's how it ends. Um, the second essay is called The Wilderness in American Culture. And this, I think, uh, is also about ethics. So he kind of builds to the land ethic uh, with, with essays that really, at the end of the day, are about how we perceive nature and how we interact with it and how we think about nature, right? Maybe that's a revolutionary part of this book is it's not really a set of policies. That's the easy part, I guess. Um, the hard part is getting us to rethink how we see nature entirely. And again, reading this now after, seven, eight, after 70 years, we've learned so much about ecology. We know it so much better and, and it's something we, we learn about as younger age. I think when he wrote this, a lot of like the, the very idea that we need to rethink how we interact with nature would have been wild to, to many readers. But anyways, that's what this essay is about, wildlife and American culture. I kind of, when I first read this, so I'm like, oh, are we going to get like a history of, of the idea of wildlife? That's me being a historian. We don't really get that. So he's, he's interested more, I guess, in, in what are the possible ethical restraints on our use of nature. And he finds like three of them. The first being kind of nationalist, right? Like the, the beauty of America as being like a national treasure that needs to be preserved. Um, but, you know, this is not really sustainable because it's full of myth, I think. But um, you know, he says like the farmer boy who, you know, was tending traps in the morning is reenacting the romance of the fur trade. Or something. That there's some kind of this nationalist fascination with the environment and these experiences of the past. So maybe there's that. Uh, the second reason I think is getting closer to the point, and that is a real, we need the wilderness to realize our dependency or the interconnectedness of ourselves with nature. Quote, remind us of our dependency on the soil of plant animal food chain. And this reminds me of something he said in the San County Almanac part, the early part where he says, everyone should like cut down their own trees once in a while and cook, the, you know, hunt their own breakfast once in a while to, to know because we, we get alienated from nature with the grocery store and the, the light switch and all these things. Um, the third is is the, like the sportsmanship argument. So he gets back to this. Um, he says, is, there is value in any experience that exercises ethical restraints collectively called sportsmanship. And again, I think we have to debate whether this existed. You know, would the passenger of pigeon have been eradicated if, Sportsmen showed sportsmanship, um, but anyways, that's there too. So he you know he's again. It's never really far from his mind the the role of the sportsman in all this. So he's trying to get at a, I think an ethical foundation for wildlife management, and he is concerned here also with with policymakers because that's again that's his career. He he comes out of wildlife management and and the state. So. Um, really, how do you manage these interests and how do you, you know, f all these different ethical concerns and, and needs for the, for nature, but he wants, he thinks that are kind of lacking, uh, an ethical dimension to it. Right. And so this is building up to land ethic as well. He's not quite there yet, but what isn't good enough is kind of technocracy and overly over management or, uh, what he calls mechanization at one point. Um, 
He says, for instance, wildlife managers are trying to raise game in the wild by manipulating its environment and thus to convert hunting from exploitation to cropping. If the conversion takes place, how will it affect cultural values? It must be admitted that split rail flavor, the free for all exploitation are historically associated. Daniel Boone had scant patience with agricultural cropping, let alone wildlife cropping. Perhaps the stubborn reluctance of one gallus sportsman to be converted to the cropping idea is an expression of a split rail inheritance. Probably cropping is resisted because it is incompatible with one component of the split rail tradition, free hunting. Mechanization offers no cultural substitute for the split rail values it destroyed, at least unvisible to me. Cropping or management does offer a substitute, which to me has at least equal value, wild husbandry. So that ultimately is the solution then, wild husbandry is the solution. Not, uh, not seeing nature as something that's going to be, be cultivated. That's, that's cropping, right? Like we, we need so many deer. So how do we ensure there's that many deer, right? I don't know. I guess in a more science, in like in a more modern component, you have people really are trying to, you know, keep certain species alive by essentially cropping them, right? By, by artificially managing their population, you know, breeding more of them in the lab or something and then, or in the zoos and then sending them out into the wild. I don't know how well that works, but it's, a uh, you know, something that's being attempted. That's what sort of what he's talking about there with, with cropping, it seems. But uh, he offers another solution called um, wild husbandry, where you work more with nature and nature's rules to, to manage wildlife instead of trying to be overly technocratic about it, I think. The next essay is just called Wilderness. And he starts out by reminding us that we're running out of it. There's a lack of wilderness, just remnants of it left. Um, but what's the use of wilderness? And we're still thinking in terms of what's its use. And I think that's a problem. But essentially, you have wilderness for recreation. The people who enjoy nature for itself, sportsmen. You got wilderness for science, right? Uh, so we need to preserve nature because it might have some scientific use. Of course, what if we, if we have no wilderness, what's the point of studying the wilderness anymore, except as a historical curiosity? The, the scientific need to study the wilderness and have questions about how it operates only makes sense if it exists, right? Not if we, not if we just have a zoo, a wilderness zoo somewhere where we can kind of come and study it, but if nowhere else on the planet, the rest of the planet's concrete, it doesn't make, make much sense to me, but... Um, Anyways, that's there. Then we have wilderness for wildlife. This is more of a pure conservationist uh, view, I guess. Uh, for its own, he doesn't say for its own sake, nature's own sake, but just for a place for wildlife to survive and to help preserve these species and their habitats. Uh, and then we have the final one, defenders of wilderness. Um, and he starts out with something that I think we know quite well and we're shocked by and it's scary when we think about it, but that wilderness can't be we can't get more of it right or, or or to get more of it it's it's a non-renewable resource in that we can use a wilderness faster than it can restore itself i guess given enough time wilderness will return but in our human lifetime it's a very very slow process we can kind of take land out of cultivation and sometimes we do desertification of course rising sea levels will do that we're getting more wetlands in some areas that will take away land from cultivation and return it to something, but it won't be wilderness for quite a while. Um, so it is a limited resource. Um, and then he talks about the, the need to defend it, right? And he's trying to also 
I'm trying to get at this ethical foundation for how we interact with nature. And all of this leads to the, the culminating essay, the longest essay in the entire book, uh, the most important, the one you can take out and read separately and, and get the main ideas that Leopold's going after, and it's called The Land Ethic. The Land Ethic. Um, and he gets into kind of a, a history of ethics here that I think is interesting. He's, he calls it kind of the, the ethical sequence, how we start out, we, we only have an ethical concern for our family or the people in our tribe. Um, and that might extend at some point to a city or eventually it, it extends to an empire or a state, uh, maybe to a culture uh, and to like a cultural uh, an idea of people or religion. Um, then we might eventually get an ethical value for all humanity. Right. And Leopold's saying we just got to take it one step farther. We already reached a point where we're capable of having an ethical concern for other people. He's writing this in 1947, 1948, you know, after World War Two. So we can doubt that. But certainly that was part of the discussion of the early U.N. was the legal foundation for human rights law. So and I think it's fair to say that we sort of got to that uh, democracy sort of reached to a stage where we make policy, you know, with the veil of ignorance. We we consider the needs of all people as being valuable, <clears throat> right? and their rights as being valuable. And he's just saying we got to extend that now to land. The land's the next stage, or you could add the sea, um, you know, or the air, space. Maybe we don't go that far, but an ecological consciousness will come out of extending our ethical concerns to nature itself, as and seeing nature as something with with a, a, a right to be respected ethically uh, on an equal foundation with with man and in its in its own right being um, seen as a moral category in its own right uh, so it's pretty simple it's a long essay and it gives different examples of how this might be done in, in terms of certain like in respect to things like land reclamation as opposed to arid regions versus wetlands and, and all these these more technical details but that's not the point of the essay the point of this is just establishing that we need to take this leap to, to the land ethic um, he says the land ethic then reflects the existence of an ecological conscience and this in turn reflects the conviction of individual responsibility for the health of the land health is the capacity of the land for self-renewal conservation is our effort to understand and preserve this capacity and this is true of once we extend ethics to all people, right? That's in a responsibility to care for the human rights of, of all people. There's a, there's a duty that goes along with that, the rights that once are universalized, we have a duty to defend them in some way, institutionally, maybe with our tax dollars, maybe uh, in sacrificing our own freedoms in some way to ensure the greater uh, expansion of rights. Um, Right. These are all kind of the moral questions of, of universal human rights. But, you know, he's just trying to apply this one step farther. I wonder, I, I really did wonder when I was reading this, how much he was thinking about the human rights conversation that was going on at, in the aftermath of World War II. He doesn't address it directly, except saying there's kind of this expanding sequence of, of ethics. But uh, some of the, the solutions are very similar to what the UN actually begins to implement. In terms of like institutional institutionalizing uh, the land ethic, and I think that's the maybe the question that's left at the end of a San County Almanac is, is okay. We have this land ethic. We read your book. We're we we have, we we understand it all. We have the land ethic. 
we're going to change how we view nature. And he just scratches the surface of how we institutionalize this. How do we actually do that? It's like we can all agree in universal human rights, but how do we ensure that some tyrant or some state doesn't, you know, give gives up capital punishment? And if they don't, what do you do about that, right? What's the moral choice? What's the method for, for dealing with this? Um, and he doesn't quite get there yet, but I think it's certainly uh, there, not far under the surface of this, of this book. So anyways, this with the previous episode is my thoughts, my review of a San Coney Almanac by Olga Leopold. Uh, obviously a very, very important work, a meaningful, impactful book, a book we should, um, you should read. Um, so next episode, I'll go into the rest of this Library of America volume of Leopold's writing. Um, it's in three parts. One are like his essays throughout his life. The next part is his journals. And then we have his, uh, his letters. I think totally I'll have uh, six more episodes to talk about the rest of Leopold's work. So we've just kind of read the work that caps his career, where his mind was when he died. But we're going to go all the way back to 1917, uh, looking at his other works on ecology and conservation. Specifically, we're going to look from 1917 to 1933, um, looking at about uh, 20... A little more than a dozen, I'm not sure how many, uh, essays he wrote uh, from that period, 1917 to 1933. So we're going to get a lot of his early career um, out of the way here. So it allows us to go back and say, well, what was he thinking? And how many of the ideas that he later embraced in the land ethic were there from the beginning? How many developed over time? So I think, I think it'll be fun um, to, to look at these different, different essays. I don't know if I'll mention every one of them, but... Um, they're all pretty good. I mean, Leopold, even when writing for, even when writing for uh, like government documents, you know, government reports, even some of the stuff here seems to have been unpublished. They're, they're just called manuscripts, typescripts. I don't know. I know one was a speech, which he would have delivered, but some are just essays that are just called types, manuscripts or types, typescripts, which I don't know if anyone else read until until they were later anthologized. Um, but he's always a good writer, and he, you know, the same kind of crispness and, and clarity that we get in the San Colony Almanac is in, is in these other writings. So I'm looking forward to looking at those. Um, so three episodes or so will get us through the, the, these works, um, uh, this kind of collected survey of his professional writings. Then we'll jump into his journals and letters, his more private writings. So we'll, we'll kind of move from the most public, which was his book, the less public, which would be more of his professional writings, to the personal, uh, as we journey our way through the works of, of Aldo Leopold. So, thanks for listening. Uh, let me give let, give me your thoughts on a San Call Me Almanac. Send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. I will appreciate it, um, and I will see you next time. Thanks now for the men listening. On the highways need those jobs we know. Let's put them to work. Planting new trees to grow Building new parks where the kids can play Pushing that cement monster away Oh, stand by me, let's protect this tree From the freeway misery There's a cement octopus sits in Sacramento